Father, what a marvelous passage this is that tells of the first encounter of these disciples with Jesus and how much they begin to perceive, even in those early stages, of who Jesus is, his uniqueness, his character, his person. Father, I pray that you would do the same with us, that as we open up the Scriptures and dig into it and what it means, I pray that you would warm our hearts and change our thoughts and perceptions even where they need to be changed, deepen our commitment and our love for Jesus and our amazement at who he is. I ask this in his name. Amen. I want to begin this morning with a question. The question is, how can we help the seeker to find God. All of us know people that are searching in their life. And there may be some people we know that are genuinely seeking where they have questions about Christianity and they just need to find answers. Those are kind of the easier ones to maybe relate to because you can provide the answers that they need or you can encourage them to find that. But there are also people that are seeking that may not even recognize it. They feel a void in their life. They're running after all kinds of things, you know, trying to fill that emptiness inside of them. And they may be running after pleasures of this world or they may be experimenting with dangerous kind of behavior in their life, trying to get some kind of thrill or meaning or purpose. And they don't really recognize what it is that they need, but they are seeking and searching. Some people are angry at God or they're so weighed down by life circumstances that they're just feeling overwhelmed by life. And they're searching and seeking too. But they may not be able to put that in the words that would express it like this. How do we help a person who is seeking to find God? Well, what we're going to see from this text this morning is that it can be as simple or we can do it by as simple an invitation as come and see. Come and see who Jesus really is. Two weeks ago, we began our study in the Gospel of John, and that first week we looked at verses 1 to 18. And I said that this is the prologue to John, and this is John's thesis about who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Son of God. He tells us that Jesus was there at creation when the worlds were made. He was with God, distinct in His person, And he was God and is God. And that word that was there at the beginning of creation became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus is the Son of God. Last week, then, we looked at John's first witness that he brought to the stand, if you will, John the Baptist, who was called to the witness stand to tell what he saw and recognized in Jesus. And he tells us, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. He states very clearly for us Jesus' mission, why He came to this earth, to die for our sins so that we might have a relationship with God. His witness, at the end of that section in verse 34, He said, I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. And now today, in the passage we're going to look at this morning, In verses 35 to 51, we see the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And John introduces us to the first disciples. And by the time we're through with this text, we're going to see Nathanael declaring that you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. One right after the other, all saying the same thing about Jesus. 
And that's how it's going to be as we go through this Gospel. As John presents the evidence about Jesus' identity and mission and how that relates to each one of us. Now I want to make a comment on this passage we're going to look at today because it is one that has puzzled theologians as they've wrestled with this. You see, what John tells us here sounds like the call of the disciples to follow Jesus. It sounds like this first call passage. But it is different from what we find in the other three Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels. They tell a lot of the same stories about Jesus and present it in a similar fashion. But John has stories that are different. John was written later. We're not even sure if John knew all that was in the other Gospels. He might not have. But he tells us different stories about Jesus. And so sometimes they've wrestled with this. Because, for example, in Matthew 4, when Jesus called the disciples there, Peter and Andrew and James and John are by the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus says, come follow me. And we read there that they left their nets. They left everything. They left their business. They left their parents. They left everything to come and follow Jesus. And here it seems different in this account. So how do you reconcile that? How do they fit together? Or what's the answer there? Well, I think the answer is as Donald Carson has suggested. And D.A. Carson is a professor of New Testament studies at Trinity And he tells us that this passage in John is not their call to ministry. In fact, it's not this radical call to be a disciple. Not yet. Rather, it is an invitation to come and see who Jesus really is. It is their first encounter with Jesus, and it makes their call passage in the other Gospels even more plausible. Because sometimes you read that and you think in the other passages where Jesus just was walking by the Sea of Galilee and He said, come follow me, and boom, they left everything. And you go, how could He do that? (laughs) How could they do that? You know, was that the first time that they had seen Jesus or heard Him? No, it wasn't at all. Here is their first encounter with Jesus. They begin to follow Him. They understand more about who He is and His teaching. And when that time comes, which will just be a few months later, when he says, come follow me, they are ready to leave everything to follow Jesus Christ. The first step in discipleship is coming into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We use a baseball diagram to illustrate the discipleship path that we have in our church. And getting to first base, that first stage is what we call the come and see stage. It is that invitation to come, come to all, come to see who Jesus really is. Come and ask your questions. We have a class like Christianity Explored where you can do that. How do we know the Bible is the Word of God? Can we trust it? Who are these individuals that testified about Jesus? And how does this all fit together? What does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? And can I trust Him with my life? Because in that first stage of discipleship, we want you to come to a good knowledge of who Jesus is, an understanding of why He came, and our own sinfulness, and our need for a Savior, so that you can make that kind of intelligent decision to place your trust in Jesus Christ, and have a full assurance of your salvation. 
in what that means. And by the end of that first stage, we come to a point where we are ready to take the next step and to follow Jesus as a committed disciple. So the first stage in discipleship, again, is this coming into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, as I said at the beginning, I believe that if you look at our world, everybody is seeking something. It might be fame or fortune or pleasure or success. Some people are seeking money and power or control in life. But if you press deeper on what it is that people are really looking for in life, the psychologist will tell us that all of us have a need to love and to be loved. We have a need for a sense of belonging, a sense of worth, a sense of competence that there is something that we can do. We have a longing to find meaning and purpose in life. And those feelings are universal. Everybody is seeking something. That's why I find this passage so interesting as it begins. John tells us that the next day after Jesus' baptism, John the Baptist sees Jesus again and he says to his disciples, Look, the Lamb of God. And two of his disciples choose to leave John the Baptist and follow Jesus. Who were the two disciples that John that left John? Well, one of them is named. He is Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. The other is unnamed, and we can't say for certain who he is, but we believe that he is John, the author of this gospel. It fits all the evidence. It explains the eyewitness details. It's the way that John spoke about himself. He never names himself in this gospel but you see him present in many different situations. And I believe that that second disciple who left John the Baptist that day was John, the author of this gospel. And they came to Jesus, and what did Jesus say? Jesus asked them, What do you want? What do you want? Now there are many different ways that that question could be put. You know, that question can be put with kind of annoyance, like, what do you want? Like, why are you following me? Kind of like maybe an older brother or sister might feel if their younger siblings are tagging along just a little bit too much, and sometimes they feel bothered by that. I don't think that's how Jesus said this at all. That question can also be asked with deep penetration, like, what do you want? Why are you seeking me? What is it that you really want? What is the longing of your heart? And why do you come to me? I think Jesus was making those disciples think about their own life and their own desires. Everybody's seeking something. Everybody's looking for something. And Jesus wants to identify what that need is in our life. You know what's interesting is Even when people sometimes get what they thought they wanted out of life, like a certain amount of money or success or a good job or a house or family, they still may ask the question, is that all there is? Is that all there is? Some people have pursued what they thought was the dream of their life and they've climbed that ladder of success. And it turned out, that it's leaning against the wrong building. What do you do then? Betty Friedan, 20 years after the feminist movement began, wrote this. 
She said, Life lived only for oneself does not truly satisfy men or women. There is a hunger in Americans today for larger purposes beyond self. Now, I would be on the opposite side of many things that she would believe in, but I agree with her on that statement. That life lived only for oneself does not truly satisfy. There's got to be something more, something bigger than that. Blaise Pascal wrote many years ago that there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. That's the way God has made us. There is this hole in our heart, if you will, and people try to stuff all kinds of things in there, but the only thing that's going to satisfy is a relationship with Jesus Christ. So Jesus asked them, What do you want? And they replied to Him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? What they were saying by that response was, Jesus, we want to spend time with You. We want to know You better. We want to follow You. Can we come with You? And Jesus replied to them and said, Come and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and they spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour, which in their reckoning of time meant it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. They spent the day with Jesus and quite likely they spent the night with him as they began to talk long through the day and into the night about who Jesus is and what he had come to do. These were the first steps of discipleship for them. I want to ask you this morning, what are you seeking? If Jesus were to ask you that question, what do you want? What do you really want out of life? When you come to the end of your life and you pass from this life to the next, what is it that's going to be most important to you? What have you set your heart on? And will it last for eternity? Then pursue it. Pursue that relationship with Jesus Christ and use the gifts that He has given you for His honor and glory and you will come to the end of your life without regrets, but with great joy. The second thing that we see in this passage is that almost everyone who comes to Jesus does so because of a friend or a brother or a sister. We see that in John beginning in verse 40. In this chapter, John the Baptist brought Andrew and, and uh, John to Jesus. And then we see how Andrew, the first thing that he did was to bring his brother, Simon Peter, to Jesus. And then a little later in this chapter, we see Philip, who brings Nathaniel, his friend, to Jesus. Seems like everybody's bringing somebody to Jesus. In fact, if you followed Andrew in this Gospel, every time we see Andrew in the Gospel of John, he is bringing somebody to Jesus. Andrew was an evangelist. Andrew had a heart for people. And so whether it's the little boy with the loaves and the fishes and the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, or it's the Greeks who wanted to see Jesus, Andrew is bringing somebody to Christ. What a great example. What a great model that is. And when Andrew brought his brother to Jesus, it was the greatest thing that he could do and did do to impact the church. 
And Andrew didn't even know it at the time. But bringing Peter to Christ was probably the greatest thing that he ever could do to influence and be a part of what God was going to do through the church. It's a little bit like the Sunday school teacher who led D.L. Moody, the evangelist, to Christ in the back of a shoe store where he worked. That Sunday school teacher didn't know how God was going to use D.L. Moody. All he knew was that there was a boy in his class who needed salvation. And he cared enough about him to pray for that and to go and make a call on him. And he shared the gospel with him and led him to Christ. God did the rest as he worked and used that encounter to open D.L. Moody's heart and bring him into a relationship with his son. Sometimes we think that we have to cross the ocean to do something big for God, or we have to be a part of this really, you know, big movement, or we got to lead this charge or do this or that. When the most important thing that you might ever do for God is to bring your brother or your sister or a friend or a neighbor or a co-worker or a student to Jesus Christ and let Him do the rest. I think of that for those of you that work in our children's ministry or those who work with our WANA program. You don't know, we don't know, none of us, how God may use those children in the years ahead. When you lead an adult to Christ, you don't know the ripple effect that that's going to have. But God does. I shared with you a few weeks ago how when I was in college, I had the opportunity to share the gospel with my brother-in-law. And how six months later, he came into a relationship with Jesus Christ when that all clicked for him and made sense. A few years later, uh, he is down in the Twin Cities area. They live in in Crystal. And he... um, begins to participate with the Here's Life campaign. Campus Crusade was uh, doing a a focus that year of wanting to bring the gospel to every household in major cities across America. And he served as one of those regional coordinators for Here's Life, Minneapolis, St. Paul, in that area. And in his particular area that he was responsible for in training and working with others in evangelism, over a thousand people came to know Christ. I just think, you know, here's that ripple effect. I had an opportunity to lead one to the Lord who in turn shared and trained with others how to share the gospel who in turn were able to lead over a thousand people to Christ. And who knows where it goes from then. You know, there's just such a ripple effect of the things that we do that only God knows and sees. And one day in heaven we'll get to see the fruit of how God used those individual actions and choices that we made along the way. Sometimes the most important thing that we might ever do for God is just simply to bring our brother or sister or a neighbor or a friend to Christ. Who is that person for you? And wouldn't it be wonderful if all of us could reach just one person even this year to have the opportunity to do that? It is doable if we will begin to pray and think about who it might be that we could say to them, come and see Jesus. Come and follow Him. When Andrew brought Peter to Jesus, Jesus looked at him in this text and He said, Simon, you will be called Cephas. You see that in verse 42. He looked at him and He said, Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas. Cephas is Aramaic 
for Peter. And that's why they translated here for us, because not many of us know Aramaic. And so he tells us that, that that's why we get the name Simon Peter. What's interesting about that is Peter in Greek, it's the word Petros, it means rock. Well, Peter was anything but a rock. I mean, you read the stories about Peter's life. Peter at times was rash. He was impulsive. He was unstable. He put his foot in his mouth. You know, he was the kind of guy who took some risks. That was great. And sometimes he just made a real fool of himself. He was not a rock. But Jesus saw what he could become. And Jesus said to him, Peter, or Simon, you will be called Peter, the rock. You know, isn't that interesting? Jesus sees what you and I can be by His grace too. He sees our weaknesses. He sees them right at the front. He sees everything about us. There's nothing we need to hide because He sees it all. We couldn't hide it if we tried. And yet He sees what we can become by His grace if we will walk with Him. And so Peter, who vacillated so much like that, who even denied Him, When Jesus was crucified, becomes Peter who is as bold as a lion in the book of Acts and who is willing to die for Jesus Christ. How do you explain that? It's a work of the Holy Spirit as God began to change His heart and His commitment. And He can change you and me that way as well. The next day, verse 43 Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. They are at Bethany on the east side of the Jordan River. And Jesus decides it's time to go back to Galilee. So he finds Philip and he says to Philip, follow me. And he calls Philip to come and see who I am and to come and just tag along with us. Be here as we make our way back to Galilee. And what does Philip do? Philip, like Andrew, was from Bethsaida. It tells us here. And he goes and he finds Nathanael. Now a little side note on the town of Bethsaida. It's there on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. It means literally a house of fishing or house of fishermen. Beth means house in Hebrew. It's like Bethel. Bethel means house of God. Or Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. And so here is this fishing village that these guys all came from. And Jesus is making his way back there, and Philip wants to bring Nathaniel along. Now, who's Nathaniel? Well, we're not 100% sure either. Most equate him with Bartholomew as one of the disciples. It might be, but we can't say that definitely. He may have just been a follower of Jesus and not one of the twelve. We just can't say for sure. But most do equate him with Bartholomew in the list of the twelve disciples. And he was from Canaan, about four miles from Nazareth. Right? So they are making their way along, and Philip comes and finds Nathanael, and he says to him, We found the one that Moses wrote about. We have found the prophet who was to come, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, for so they thought. And Nathanael hears that, and he knows this town of Nazareth, and he goes, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? You know, it's interesting how the Jews in Jerusalem, they looked down on Galileans. Galileans were kind of uncouth, uncivilized, unsophisticated. 
because they had been overrun so many times by other nations that had made their way on kind of the main highway through Galilee and conquered it. And so the Jews in Jerusalem that were more sophisticated didn't think much of Galileans. And here you have a Galilean who doesn't think much of a Nazarene. But isn't that just like Jesus, to identify with the lowest of the low? It was said of Jesus that he shall be called a Nazarene. And he identified with the lowest. We don't know why Nazareth was looked down on. We don't know what they had done or what their reputation was, but apparently it wasn't good. And Philip doesn't even try to answer Nathaniel's brief objection here. He just says to him, Come and see. Come and see who Jesus really is. So Nathaniel comes. And when Jesus sees him approaching, he says to him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. It's a statement about Nathaniel's character. And Nathaniel is going, Well, how do you know me? And Jesus answered and says to him, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now when I read that, I, I always took that kind of literally. Like, here's Nathaniel and he's sitting out in this park and he's sitting under a fig tree and he's kind of thinking or sitting there and Philip came up to him. That might be, but I was struck by this observation in my study that that phrase, to sit under a fig tree, was also a figure of speech at that time. It was a figure of speech for studying the Torah and meditating on God's Word. And what Jesus might be saying to Nathaniel is, you know, when you were studying the Scriptures and you were meditating on that, that voice that spoke to you was me that I was there when you were doing that study. You see, Jesus revealed here His personal knowledge of Nathaniel's character and of His most intimate spiritual experience. It's one of those hints that John gives all the way through that are statements about Jesus' omniscience. How He knows what's going to happen. There's no surprises with Jesus. He knows what's in the heart of man. He knows everything about you and me. And John gives us these kind of insights all the way through the Gospel of John. And to me, that explains Nathaniel's response here when he says to him, Truly, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. When I read this account of Nathaniel, it made me think about our trip to Israel a number of years ago. Where we had a guide who was um, a Messianic Jew. And he had grown up in Galilee in that region. Uh, he had been trained as a classical musician. He was a tenor. He sang beautifully. He had studied in Europe because of his talent and skill. And so he went to Europe to be trained even more in classical music. And as he is singing these songs of that classical tradition he keeps encountering this person, Jesus. And he keeps wondering, why are there so many songs about Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Why is everybody singing about Him? And one day he hears a voice speaking to him in his mind and says, Dror, go back to Galilee and you will find me. 
And so he goes back to the region of the Galilee and he begins to study and search and seek out who is this person, Jesus. And God, in his providence, brings into his life these Messianic believers who tell him about Jesus. And the light goes on and his heart is open and he comes to know the one who he has been seeking for. I think that's what's going on here. Nathaniel was a man who studied the Scripture, who wanted to know God more fully, more deeply. And in those times when he studied the Scripture and he poured out his heart, Jesus was the one who was speaking to him, and he's the one who speaks to you and me. Nathaniel offers this great response that, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Only God can know those things about me. Only God can know the deepest longings of my heart. And Jesus said to him, and I think there's some humor in the way he says this too, he said, Nathaniel, you believe just because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You know, this is a reference to a story in the Old Testament that's found in Genesis chapter 28. I kind of wonder if it wasn't the very passage that Nathaniel was meditating on. It's a story about Jacob, who was a schemer. Jacob was a man in whom there was guile. Jacob was a man who was a deceiver, kind of the opposite here of Nathaniel in his character as he came to Christ. And Jacob came to this place where one night he had a dream and he saw a stairway to heaven and he saw the angels of God ascending and descending upon this ladder or stairway going up and down to heaven. And when he woke up that next morning, he erected an altar there and he said, Surely this is the house of God. Surely this is Beth-El, the house of God. And he worshipped God in that place. And Jesus is saying, If God could speak to Jacob, that schemer, He can speak to you. And Nathaniel, what you're going to see is that I'm that stairway to heaven. I'm that ladder, if you will. And you will see the angels of heaven ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And you will know that I'm the one that I claim to be. A few years ago, Lee Strobel wrote a book called What Would Jesus Say? And in that book, he took several popular figures kind of in pop culture and icons to the world and he raised the question, what would Jesus say to each one of them in a different chapter? One of those persons that he wrote about there was Madonna. Now, Madonna is the kind of person that's well-known, you know, and she is just outrageous in her behavior. In fact, for her, there's no such thing as bad publicity because, you know, any kind of publicity is good. Why does she do the things that she does, though? What is she seeking? She said in an interview, she made this statement about herself. She said, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being and then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. 
But my, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of inadequacy, of being mediocre. And that's always pushing, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. And Lee Strobel said, think about this. What would happen if Madonna were to come to an accurate understanding of who God is and start seeing Him as the most important person in her life? It would settle her self-worth once and for all. When she understood that Jesus died for her, that He loves her, that He has a plan and a purpose for her life. And he said, I think Jesus would tell her this. I understand what happens when I'm missing from the core of a person's life. I understand how you feel compelled to search elsewhere for significance, affirmation, acceptance, self-worth, fulfillment, and love. And that search is taking you to some dangerous and destructive places and you still haven't found what you're looking for. You feel frustrated because the only thing that can satisfy the center of your soul is me. Have you come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you believe that He's the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins? And have you placed your trust in Him as your Savior and Lord? If not, I encourage you to do so today. And if you have questions or doubts about that, I invite you to come and see and come to a full assurance of faith. Come and study the book of John with us and continue in this series or come to our Christianity Explorer class. And if you are reaching out to someone, you have come to a full assurance of your faith, but you know someone who is seeking, would you invite them to come and see? Remember, almost everyone comes to Jesus because of the witness of a brother or sister or friend. So who's that person that you could invite to come and join us in this study? Who will you invite to come and see Jesus? Let's pray.